Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of the QuietMark podcast. I'm your host, Simon Gosling, and QuietMark is the independent international approval award program associated with the UK Noise Abatement Society Charitable Foundation. It encourages companies worldwide to prioritize noise reduction within the design of everyday machines and appliances and find solutions to noise problems to benefit health and well-being. It's February as I record this episode, and February can only mean one thing, awards season. Yes, currently trending on Twitter is Golden Globes, the 2021 nominees are here. And traditionally, of course, February is the month every year when the Oscars happen. A bit closer to home, February is also the month every year when the Surface Design Awards happen. And it's almost a year to the day, February the 13th to be exact, that QuietMark launched its Acoustics Academy with a TED-style masterclass speaker event after last year's Surface Design Awards at London's Business Design Centre. Our Acoustics Academy, of course, is a new online platform that further equips and empowers architects, builders and designers with a guide to expertly verified leading acoustic solutions for every building application area. And I've had great fun recording previous episodes of this show with representatives from the brands whose products can be found on the Acoustics Academy platform. Brands such as Rockwall, Armacoat, Baswa, Enfield Doors, many of them have all been on the show sharing their passion for improved acoustics in the built environment and also telling us more about the solutions that they provide to enhance acoustics. So, in keeping with that February Awards theme, it's fitting that our guests on this show are both judges at this year's first ever Sound of the Year Awards. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to Matthew Herbert, a composer, whose original idea it was to start up these awards, and he is the Chair of Judges, and he's joined by fellow judge Cheryl Tipp, who's also the Curator of Wildlife and Environmental Sounds at the British Library. And in this show, I'll also be taking time to ask Cheryl questions about that exciting role. So first, let me read a couple of introductions to our guests, and then we'll ask them all about the Sound of the Year Awards. Matthew Herbert is an award-winning composer, artist, producer and writer whose range of innovative works extends from more than 30 albums, including the much-celebrated Bodily Functions, to scores for Oscar-winning films, A Fantastic Woman, as well as music for the National Theatre, Broadway, TV series Noughts and Crosses BBC, games, Lego and radio. He has performed solo, as a DJ, with various musicians including his own 21-piece big band and 100-piece choir all around the world from Sydney Opera House to the Hollywood Bowl and has created installations, plays and opera. He has remixed iconic artists such as Quincy Jones, Ennio Morricone, Serge Gainsbourg and Mahler and been I mean, a long-time collaborator, one of my personal heroes, Bjork. He's had work commissioned by the Royal Opera House, the BBC and Deutsche Grammophon, amongst many others, but he's best known for working with sound, turning ordinary or so-called found sound into electronic music. His most celebrated work, One Pig, followed the life of a pig from birth to plate and beyond. His debut book, The Music, was published by Unbound in 2018, and he's the creative director of the new BBC Radiophonic Workshop. Cheryl Tipp is the British Library's Curator of Wildlife and Environmental Sounds. With a background in zoology and library services, Cheryl has spent the past 15 years looking after the library's world-renowned collection of over 250,000 species and habitat recordings. She's worked extensively on projects that encourage the creative reuse of archival format, from student video games to short films for emerging filmmakers. She's currently Secretary of the International Bioacoustics Council, which seeks to promote discussion and the exchange of ideas between scientists, engineers, sound archivists and field recordists working with natural history sound recordings. 
The inaugural Sound of the Year Awards 2020 is a newly launched celebration of everyday sound, not music, in all its forms, presented by the Museum of Sound in partnership with the new BBC Radiophonic Workshop and others. It's a UK-based awards ceremony this year, but submissions are encouraged from around the world. Anyone over the age of 16 can enter. The awards aim to highlight the rapidly growing international community of sound professionals and enthusiasts. During lockdown, there's been a chance to hear the world differently. Cities, in particular, have been transformed as they've emptied. Sound, listening, and a healthy sonic environment are becoming recognised as a vital part of our daily lives. Where there are many award shows for everything associated with moving images, the Sound of the Year Awards 2020 states that the time is right to acknowledge and support those working hard to build and share their knowledge and recordings of moving audio in this new age of sound. The ceremony will take place in early 2021. And on their website, soundoftheyearawards.com, you'll see all the rules of entry, which say that all sounds must be heard, recorded, or created between the 1st of December 2019 and the 1st of December 2020, and all submissions must be in by 1800 hours on the 28th of February 2021. So get entering. Welcome to the show, Matthew and Cheryl. Hi, thank you. Uh, hi, thanks for having us. Oh, thank you so much for taking the time. So starting with you, Matthew, you're the chair of judges. I gave a brief explanation as to what the Sound of the Year Awards is, but let's hear it from you. Tell us all about it and how you came to be involved. Take it from the start. So it's one of these strange things, which is uh, I had the idea to do Sound of the Year Awards maybe 10 years ago, and it just takes... It can take that long to actually just work out how to put the pieces together, um, how to do it. It also needs to be about timing. You know, there needs to be a kind of a natural flow of how thing, you know, how how things are likely to be received. And it just it actually felt that lockdown had a significant impact on people's sonic environments um, in such a way that I think that we suddenly became very conscious collectively of the role, the important role that sound plays in our lives. And so it seemed like actually we needed to sort of push on and get it up and running this year, which is what happened. And I think, you know, something really just in purely in terms of sonic, sonically in our sonic environment, putting aside the sort of tragedy of the pandemic, but actually just in sonic terms, it's been a huge kind of demonstration on or a sort of public experiment about the impact on our relationship with sound, you know, people that are used to going to offices every day and taking and commuting and listening to transport and things are suddenly uh, in a very small closed environment with just the sort of sounds of the fridge or uh, the neighbours upstairs or whatever, whatever it might be, however your environment might have been um, transformed. And, um, and I think there's a sort of, an understanding, I guess, or we've reached a collective realization that actually uh, we've kind of been living in a sort of semi cacophonous world where just anything, particularly in cities, where anything goes. And I think we've realized that actually it's key to something, a healthier life or a healthier way of listening can unlock something really beautiful and powerful and emotional and healthy. And it's just a question of well being, ultimately, in the sense of. In the same way that you know how we the decisions we make about 
what we put into our bodies in terms of food or what we put in terms of our bodies in terms of looking at stuff, you know, whether it be films or books or information or whatever it is. So it's just another form of, of trying to be aware of, of making good decisions about what we put into our ears. And just it now seemed a perfect time to kind of support and celebrate people and the sounds that are contributing to that. It's interesting you saying that. I was watching a video on the New Yorker uh, magazine this week and someone used an analogy talking about New York being one of the loudest cities in the world. And they said uh, because sound is invisible, you come to sort of just expect it as part of the environment. But if you could see the noise that was being produced in in literacy, it would be like plastic bottles and litter just sprawling everywhere. And you wouldn't want a landscape like that. So you really shouldn't have a soundscape like that. Cheryl, you're a curator of wildlife sounds at the British Library. Uh, looking after a library, I believe I read of 250,000 sounds. So you're very familiar with this and a field recordist. Uh, we'll talk more about your role at the British Library soon. But you're one of the judges on the Sound of the Year Awards. Uh, how did you come to be involved? And maybe talk to us about some of the categories. We're all very familiar with best actor, best actress, best movie. But what sort of categories can we expect to see in Sound of the Year Awards? Well, I was kindly invited by Matthew to be part of the um, panel. And it's, it's so exciting for me because, you know, I work with sound every day. And having something like this, which is purely focused on sound, is such a wonderful thing. And as Matthew says, it's such a, you know, it's the perfect time to do this. We're often so distracted by visuals. And even in award ceremonies, normally visuals are at the top. And then it's, oh, yeah, well, maybe we'll look at the sound as well. But to have that as the core focus is, is such a great thing. And just looking back at the, all the different categories, each one is so interesting. You know, obviously you have the sound of the year, that's the, the, the top one, but then you've got things like best artificial sound and best field recordists, best studio sound recorders. There's so many different elements that we can bring into this and so many different um, categories that people can apply or um, nominate sounds for. Um, disappearing sound is another one. I mean, working in the sound archive, we work an awful lot with sounds that are no longer uh, in the world. You know, they're just, they're just kept on tape or in people's memories on different formats. And so it's very interesting for me to see what people will consider at this point in time as a disappearing sound and something that we may not have around us or may not be able to experience in real life in the coming years, but it's something that is still worth saving. And what, why is it? What makes it so special for people? Why do they think it's worth saving? So it's going to be very interesting to see that particular category and what people nominate uh, to go there. I'll be very curious to see what people think just recently, we were told by Lisa Lavia, the managing director of the Noise Abatement Society, she quoted Murray Schaefer, the godfather of acoustics, who wrote the book The Tuning of the World. And he said that our response to sound is subjective uh, he, and that there's no such thing as bad sound. It's just your subjective opinion. So you might hear church bells and someone, an urbanite visiting the countryside, might go, oh, listen to those beautiful church bells in the distance. Whereas the person who lives next door to the church trying to put their baby sleep to sleep will be going, oh my God, I wish that church would just stop ringing those bells. So it is a very subjective thing. When we are seeing the Oscars and we're judging performances, of course it's subjective and you look at some performance for certain nuances and you therefore go, that's the best actor or that was the best visual effects. How does one, if sound is so subjective, how does one define a sound as the sound of the year or the best sound? What are you looking for? I think, I mean, it's obviously going to be very, very different from for each category, but I think there's a really crucial kind of unpicking that's needed about what we talk about when we talk about sound. So um, 
it's it's actually recorded sound is an incredibly recent phenomenon really in human development i mean we have the recorded image since cave paintings you know people put handprints and uh in caves or drew animals or what have you but we haven't had recording for example of an animal till the invention of the wax cylinder or the microphone or you know wherever you want to pinpoint the origins of it which is you know not that long ago 140 years ago or so which is actually a very short period of time and in that time since then we've really focused enormously on recorded voice and recordings of music you know there's still for example nowhere i mean the work that Cheryl's doing in the British Library is somewhere where you get close, but there's still nowhere really where you can listen to 1982, for example. Or you want to listen to last week, if you want to hear what last week sounded like, where do you go? You know, you can try and pick out little bits of archive here and there, but but actually there isn't, a, you know, and yet there's, you know, Google image search or there's huge archives of um, stock images and things like that that you can look at different styles and fashions and things like that. Yeah, it's a very crude... We're in a very sort of young, crude, early stage of what listening means. I think that's one of the reasons, for example, in the in the bit of blurb about the sound of the years, we talk about the age of sound, you know, which is like actually we're just beginning to to make sense of it. One of the things that I really love about, and it doesn't really answer your question, it, may, it sort of muddies it even further, but one of the things I love about sound as well is that our Im- imaginations are implicated differently. So, for example, if if right now you played the sound of a car, you might imagine a, a blue Ford. Cheryl might imagine the sound of a, a green Maserati. <laughs> and I might imagine the sound of a white BMW. And actually, it's a turquoise Rover or something like that. You know, it's, <laughs> we, our brains are implicated in a, very, in a very different way. I think what we're particularly interested in is the social and political context of these sounds as well. It's not, it's not just is this a nice sound, you know, because that feels, um, I mean, it could end up being that could end up being the most beautiful sound made by, um, a giant skyscraper that creaks in the wind that, that, that the designers didn't do it and design it that way, but accidentally creates this beautiful sound. Mm. Um, or it could be something really precisely designed by somebody. And, and we do have different categories of that that's why we have, as Cheryl mentioned, you know, we have artificial sound, for all the sound designers and people that actually create sounds from scratch. Um, but for actually the main sound of the year, we're really open. We're really, um, but I think it's really important that we think about who gets to make sound, um, who gets to judge whether a sound is bad or not. What's the context of that? You know, I think it's important, for example, to remember that sound has often been used as a form of control and social control. So for example, loud music being played in certain areas, maybe of sort of lower socioeconomic status or something like that, you know, as a way of keeping people from expressing themselves or um, rising up against the powers and things like that. There's been strict curbs on, you know, there's curfews and keeping people quiet and things like that, pirate radio stations and things. So I think it's important that we that we take a sort of holistic view of how these things all fit together and not just we're not just listening to a really good door creak or something mm. like that. You know, I think we also want to know which door is it. If it's a door creak, we want to know which door it is, who recorded it, why do they record it, why is this door worth listening to, um, what's the story behind it and so on. 
Cheryl, you're nodding in agreement quite uh, enthusiastically there. What's that triggering in your mind? Well, it's just the archi- uh, the archivist's uh, mentality, isn't it? I want to know what kind of door that is. I want to know <laughs> what type of wood is it? Is it, you know, all of these things, because that's what I do every day is, is gather up all of this information because you never know what kind of information, what kind of contextual information people are going to want as well. Obviously, the sound is at the core of uh, what we do, but then you have all the other contextual information as well. So just talking about, you know, all the different elements that you could recall to go along with that. It's, yeah, it's just triggering my the lark of his brain. And one of the things that's kind of interesting as well, looking at um, the website, which uh, to, to quote it is soundoftheyearawards.com, is unlike comparing it against the Oscars, you have to have made a film or probably be a professional film company. This says it's open to anyone over the age of 16 living anywhere in the world who can enter. So what advice might you give to people who are amateurs or maybe have never even recorded something, but are listening to this show and think, that's a beautiful sound I hear you say, I might capture that for Sound of the Year Awards. What would you advise them? From my perspective, I think it's really important to acknowledge that the that the medium is part of the is part of the story as well. You know, the format that you record is part of the story. So when, it doesn't need to be perfectly recorded in a studio. I think, you know, I, I think, for example, in my own day job in, in music, I think one of the sort of worst things that's happened in music over the last sort of 30, 40, 50 years has been the sort of massive soundproofing of studios, like trying to keep sound out, you know, and I, I think I understand it if you're recording a 90-piece orchestra for a film score and you don't want somebody, you don't want a bus driving past in the middle of a particular scene. But as musicians, one of our roles is uh, is as storytellers, I think. And um, we've, for, for a long time, we've sort of kept, kept sound out. You know, we've tried to sort of keep it at arm's length instead of trying to embrace it and it, embrace the new opportunities that it offers. So I think from our perspective, we're really not worried about it sounding you know the the, the the format can carry as as much story as well as the sound itself mm. for example you know you might be uh, you might be living in an oppressive regime and recording is banned and you're recording it furtively you know on your phone up your sleeve or something like that and that will carry a huge weight to it um and tell you something very different um you know i i was uh, I was in September. Um, I was in Manhattan on September the 11th, and I thought I was going to die. I was on the roof of a building, a couple, you know, a few blocks from the thing, and so I thought well, I might as well record it. Um, so I'm going to die anyway. So I sort of, I've got these recordings, and uh, they tell you something about, you know, the perspective. It somebody was obviously there. It's not recorded from the TV and things. Matthew, I know you're a busy composer, musician, judge, or awards organizer who needs to get on with his day. So I'm going to. Thank you for your time and wish you well the awards. And Cheryl, will continue our conversation. All the best, Matthew. Thanks very much. Thanks for doing the show. No worries. See ya. Okay, see you. All the best. Bye. Bye, Matthew. And over to you, Cheryl. You comfortable there in your kitchen? Oh, it's fine. Yeah, I'm used to it now. So. <laughs> Where are we talking to you from? Whereabouts are you? Uh, Stevenage. Oh, Stevenage. I grew up in yeah. Kings Langley, Watford, so Hertfordshire boy at heart. Yeah, yeah nice. <laughs> Again, thank you for joining us for this show. And uh, it's great hearing there from Matthew about the awards. Uh, you must be quite excited judging this. I am. I really am. I've worked with Matthew on a couple of things previously. Um, and so to be asked to be part of this as well. 
it's it's an honour as well. You know, it's the first year that they've done something like this. And there's only, I think, 12 judges or 10 judges. And so to be asked to be part of that panel, and I'm in great company, you know, I've got Chris Watson there and all these other people and I'm looking them up again. Oh, my goodness. Let's look at some of those judges. Let's go through and we've got Alana Chance, who's from Reduced Listening. Bernie Krause, Wild Sanctuary, Cheryl Tip from the British Library, <laughs> Chris <laughs> Chris Watson, uh, I believe he's ex Cabaret Voltaire and Natural History Sound Recordist, uh, Rana Eid from DB Studios, Tony Gale from the Audio Cartel, Trevor Cox, Professional Acoustic Engineering, and of course Matthew Herbert, the Chair of Judges. So as you say, good company. Are you making new friends there, or is that part of the acoustics community that you know so well? I know some of them. I've worked with some of them uh, closely uh, previously as well. But some some people on the panel, I, I, I've never dealt with them before, never worked with them before. So this is really exciting for me to make new connections, you know, and to work alongside people that are really into sound and they really get sound and they get the importance of sound and coming from diff- lots of different uh, backgrounds as well. It's going to be interesting to see how we make our decisions. No, uh, so those new ones, can we make lasting friends on Zoom when we're judging together or do you have to be in the same room together doing that? I think we're so used to things like Zoom and FaceTime and all that now, yeah. It's just, you sort of forget the the fact that you're not with people anymore. You know, we're so we're so used to it. So I'm sure, I'm sure we'll be friends forever. Oh, that's wonderful. I've judged a few things myself and been in rooms like for the DNAD Awards where there's a lot of back and forth no, it should win because of this and disagreements. And that's part of the fun of a judging panel. Are you still getting that or are you not quite judging yet because you've still got the submissions coming in? That's right. We're not judging yet because we've got, you know, a few more weeks left. Um, but it will be interesting to see how we're going to do it because everyone lives in different places as well. So you've got different time zones <laughs> to uh, take into consideration. I think we're just going to go with it. You know, we'll have to, we've had to adapt so much over the past 10, 10 months. I'm sure we can manage to uh, to do it for this as well. Now, my research tells me that you started with a degree in zoology. Tell me I'm wrong. That's right. right. And you end up being curator of natural sounds at the British Library. Quite a journey, Cheryl. How do you go from zoos to libraries? So I did my degree in zoology a long time ago now. Um, And my speciality was actually population biology. I didn't work with sound at university. And then I wanted to actually earn some money. So I thought, well, I'll get a job after I've graduated. So I worked in the public library for a little time. Mm-hmm. And then a job opening came up in the sound archive in the wildlife department. And uh, I went for it, assuming I wouldn't get it. And I did get it. <laughs> and then it just went from there. And then I've been there for what, 15 years now. And I learned everything actually working in the sound archive, you know, because my background wasn't in sound. So everything I know has come from working you know, alongside different curators and uh, sound recordists and audio engineers and just learn everything on the job. Tell me if I'm wrong, but is there a balance between curating, so organising the 250,000-odd recordings that you've got, making sure that that's all accessible and open, but also curating. So curator in a museum, as we know, gathers stuff together, sometimes puts on exhibitions to curate exhibitions and other times he's having to capture new material to make that exhibition all the more relevant. I was talking to Martin Ware and he had sonified the album sales figures of David Bowie for David Bowie Is at the Victoria and Albert Museum. So there's something where you've got all these David Bowie recordings but you still have Martin Ware coming to do something for the show. Does that sound like a familiar way of working for you? 
Oh, very much. I mean, the role of a, of a sound curator or a sound archivist is so broad. You've got so many aspects to your job. You know, you're bringing in new content, you're looking after the content, then you're pushing out the content and you're working with other people who are reinterpreting the content. And, you know, I work with scientists, I work with artists, I work with musicians, I work with people people who are just using it for inspiration or, you know, for well-being. There's a, I'm doing a lot of work around well-being at the moment and the, the role that natural sounds play um, in, in people's well-being. So there's so many different things that you have to do as a curator, but that's, that's what makes it so interesting. And that's what broadens out your knowledge. So you're not just inward looking, you know, you're just not just sort of keeping your content and looking after it and making sure it's all tidy. You're also pushing it out mm. and make people aware of what you've got and the benefits of the collection, the importance of the collection. Um, so no, no two days are ever the same, uh, which is what makes it so interesting. If I were to ask you, what is the most accessed sound in the British Library Museum, would you be able to answer something like that? The most access sound, it's tricky to know because we have so many different, we have different platforms. You know, we have um, British Library Sounds, which is a website that we have. And then you have some content on SoundCloud and you have, I, I think the, the sound recording that comes to mind that is perhaps not the most accessed, but the one that makes people's jaws drop and they're like, no way, this isn't real. It's uh, would probably be the sound of our old favourite, the, the haddock. So it's the swim bladder of the haddock. Oh, I could have guessed that. <laughs> I'm sure. That's the one that I often play to people uh, when they're looking for interesting sounds or strange sounds because no one thinks a fish would, would make a sound or, you know, most people don't think a fish would, would create a sound. And it, lists, it sounds like a motorboat revving up. <laughs> and so you play it to people and say, what do you think that is? They have no clue. And then you say, oh, it's the uh, swim bladder of a male haddock. And that's one that, that pe people just absolutely love. And it's one of the first recordings that I heard when I started. And I just thought it was a piece of foley. You know, I thought it was artificial. But and that's, I guess that's, that's, what, that's what kept me so interested in the sounds of the natural world as well, is that there's so many amazing sounds out there. And the more you dig, the more you, you discover all of these, oh. these strange sounds. Cheryl, I always precede an episode with social media posts uh, announcing the forthcoming show. And I think you've clearly given me a, what is this? <laughs> if I'm going to have to access that and use that as, a, as a, you know, an advertisement for this show. Can you guess what this sound is? But I think it sounds like a missing round from University Challenge as well, if you ask me. <laughs> which you, which you, you would do very well in, you and your zo zoology mates. <laughs> we would we would we'd wipe the floor with everyone <laughs> <laughs> and um you know we hear about platforms like youtube with the abundance of video content being uploaded to platforms like youtube which people are, are accessing i would ask is there a youtube of sound um also is there an abundance of record have we seen an increase in the amount of recordings being uploaded to platforms in terms of platforms, there are various platforms out there. I mean, obviously, you have your SoundCloud, you have your Free Sounds, you have these various, these, these other ones. Uh, the British Library, we're currently re revamping our own websites that come the late summer, early autumn. We should be able to have, um, you know, tens of thousands of recordings from our archive covering all areas as well that people will be able to freely access, um, listen to, download, search. So hopefully that will be good for people yeah. to see some of the treasures that we have in our archive. But I think the change in technology over the years has meant that there has been this proliferation of sound, you know, before, certainly from talking from a soundscape point of view or from a wildlife sound point of view, you'd go out into the field, you'd have to carry your tapes with you, you'd have to carry your batteries with you, you know, you'd have a limit to how much you could, you could take with you. And yeah. that would, that, 
a limit on how many recordings you could make. But obviously now, if you've got digital recorders, you know, you can, you, it's kind of endless how much you can record. It's so much, it's not easier. I wouldn't say it's easier, but you can get, you can make more recordings in, in, a, in a session. And so I think that's why we've seen so many more recordings coming in. I used, I, you know, I used to get a box of um, maybe 20 tapes, okay? That might be someone's um, effort from the past couple of years. And now I'll get a hard drive and it'll have something like 6,000 recordings on it. But it's just the, 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 the amount of content uh, that comes in now, because it's digital and it's easier, you're seeing a lot, you know, a lot more content. And it is easier for people. Um, I think with our phones, you know, people can get into recording much easier now than they ever could before. It's cheaper as well. You could buy yourself a very nice little handheld recorder for, you know, £150, £250. Whereas before, you'd have to buy your big UR. It's more of an investment. No, what you're saying is interesting. I uh, come from a photography and film background. And one of my favourite programmes I've watched during lockdown has been called Icon on Sky Arts. And it follows the photographers of the classic rock and roll roll shots. And one of the most iconic shots of Jimi Hendrix uh, taken by Gerard Leibovitz, who, uh, no, Gerard Mankiewicz, sorry, um, who was famed for doing the early Rolling Stones shots. But there's this, when you say Jimi Hendrix, people often think of that um, military jacket with sort of mm. the, the loose shirt underneath it, black and white, hands on hips, staring at camera. And Gerard says in the show that, you know, he had like 36 exposures on a, on a film. And the only shot on, you can see the contact sheet with all the different shots on it. They're all band shots. But for one moment, Jimmy says to the other members of the band, can I just do Jimmy on his own? Jimmy, just stand by the wall. Boom, icon. Everyone knows it. And you, you Google Jimmy, it's the first thing you see. And his words were, when you had to be more selective, you took better shots rather than when you had a phone, you could just pop, 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 pop. And they were also saying that it was a feeling, it was a rhythm between the photographer and the performer. That iconic shot of Paul Simon and from the clash on the front cover of mm-hmm. London's Calling with the bass guitar striking the ground. It isn't mm-hmm. charm that that photographer necessarily got that. It, yes, it, there's a certain element of chance, but the photographer knew from the way, from the maybe 10 seconds before it happened that something was coming. Paul was going to do something and boom, they're there for it. Yeah. This is applicable to sound recording, right? Yeah, it is. It is very applicable. I mean, you could just go outside and, you know, turn your phone on or turn your recorder on and just say, oh, yeah, I just record some of this because it's so easy now. But there's a lot of field craft that comes into sound recording, you know, for, for any kind of sound recording, but certainly for, for, for natural sound recording. You know, you have, to, you have to get the feeling and the feeling only comes from experience as well. You know, so you have to know your habitat. I know people that go out to the habitat before they even turn on their recorder. They go out, they listen. They pay attention. They they get to know what kind of animals are around. You know, they, they build up this picture in their in their head, and they almost become a well. They are a part of it. Do you know what I mean? They sort of immerse themselves in it by doing that. They get that sense, and they're almost that at one with their surroundings. So when they do feel that something's going to happen, they're they're ready. You know, they haven't gone in there blind. No, it re- it relates again to that icon show. This uh, in, it talks about how in the sixties photographers had free reign. They could almost go on stage and in the 70s a little bit it was the same when the 80s came along and it became more of a business managers and record companies said to the photographer's pit first song only and then you've got to go because you're in the way of all the fans and i suppose there's some benefits to that although today everyone's holding a camera but nevertheless 
the photographers were saying when the management came in and did the two, I think it was as a rule, it was something like two songs only and then you're out. They were like, hold on, that's the bit where we're checking out the band. The classic shots come on song seven and song 14, you know, not in the first two when the band are just starting to get a feel for the audience. Yeah, exactly. It's the same with sound. You know, you can't just go in somewhere and they say, right, you know, you've got 10 minutes, you know, make your recordings. It doesn't work like that. And, you know, with, with natural sounds, it's, you, you, can't just, you can't just turn up, turn on your recorder, make your recording and go home again. You know, it's not like working, even, even like you say, your, your example there, it's, it's not easy, but it's not the same as bringing people into the studio saying, right, everyone's ready. Can I turn my recorder on now? Off you go. It's, it's, so, it's so hard to, to be, you know, a top wildlife sound recordist or a top soundscape recordist. You know, it's not an easy thing. There's, there's so much skill there and years and years of experience. And, you know, it's some, sometimes it can be a little dismissed, you know, that kind of recording. But the yeah. effort that goes into it, it's just it's insane amount of effort. Now, didn't I read that one of the categories is best feel recording? Yes, best feel, no, best field sound recordist. That yeah. does have a bit more of a professional ring to it. What makes someone a great set field sound recordist? It is the, the field craft, you know, the awareness of not just your kit that you're using, but also the subject and also your surroundings. And I know many absolutely fantastic field recordists, fantastic, and they do it as a hobby, you know. They're not professionals. They may have really good kit, but they're not professionals. It's not their job. You know, no. they do this when they finish their job mm-hmm. and so it's just just being so well it's the passion as well you know you're, you're so into your subject um but fieldcraft comes into it so much and the awareness and that kind of just that feeling you you get from loving what you do and you know really being immersed in it Let's look at some of the emotions of sounds, if you don't mind, um, because we are talking about Sound of the Year awards. And I know that when I read those words, Sound of the Year awards, the first thing that sprang to mind for me was clapping on doorsteps for NHS heroes. Now, that is a physical act, and it's a communitive act, especially in lockdown when we were locked down. It's kind of nice to see our neighbours on the doorstep. Mm. But it would be nothing without that sound, mm. the sound and the collective sound. What is it about the collective sounds like that that bring people together? I mean, it's a shared act. So there, there is something um, that resonates with us because we're, we're all, you know, is that kind of collective experience. But sound, sound is so um, emotive. You know, we rely so much on, our, on, our, on the visuals, you know, and we always put that first. But some of the most in, in, intense responses you'll get, it comes from sound. You know, um, in, in our archive, we have recordings, a few recordings of, of extinct species. OK, so extinct, extinct birds. And like you can you can show someone a painting of that bird and say it's extinct. You can show someone a specimen of the bird and say it's extinct. But when you play a recording of that animal while it was still alive, you know, singing it on our planet. And we will never hear this ever, ever again because of what we've done. The, the, the response you get from people you know i've seen i've i've, I've brought it's, it's brought people to tears when you mm. when you hear this recording and, and the, the one that i'm referring to is the last male the last individual of that species just singing for his mate that was 
you know, has, has gone. You're, he's on his own on this planet, all because of us, you know. And it's, it's like the last, the last sound that he, he made. And then a couple of years later, he disappears and that's it. And we, we know that this is because of us. And so it, it triggers something so deep within us, sound. I'm 50, so when I grew up, it was silent Super 8 projectors. And the only sound you heard was the wording of the projector, which has a beautiful nostalgic sound in itself, that mechanical sound. But And what you saw was mute. And then, of course, VHS and mini-DV and so on. And I've got, personally, you know, my children are in their 20s, so I've got tons of mini-DV footage. But when I put it on, actually, it doesn't have to be as morbid as someone who's passed away. It could be something of my children in their 20s hearing mm. their first words or mm. their, their two-year-old voice. And they're in hysterics, you know, like, oh, my God, listen to my voice. And yeah. it's, it's amazing uh, when you watch it as a parent, it mm. brings back... You know, the visuals bring back the memory of the moment you're looking at. The sound brings yeah. back the memory of the time. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And when you when you spoke about the clap for carers, I know someone who has been working, um, well, it's Citizen Memory, and they've been working on collecting recordings all around the world that were made during lockdown. And recently I went and revisited some of the recordings he's made because, or the project has captured because they're going to be archived at the British Library later on. And... You know, when you're part of the, 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 the clap for carers that we did, you know, it's an emotional moment. You know, you're all outside doing this. But listening back to the recordings mm. actually felt more emotional than taking part in it, which is bizarre because yeah. it's bringing back all of those feelings. And maybe because you've moved on and you've got all of this other um, experience of, you know, the past 10 months, 11 months and then listening back to that moment, everything everything that's happened all comes to the surface. And it, it's really bizarre, but it was, you know, it's actually much more emotional listening to it after you took part. It's very strange. It is strange. It's strange as well in, this, in these sort of days of BBC Sport and watching football on TV mm-hmm. and there's no crowd. And so they put sort of, we're used to canned laughter in comedies. They're kind of putting canned crowd. But it has to be non-partisan, otherwise fans will go, oh, the BBC clearly support Chelsea because they cheered louder than they do for Tottenham. You know, it's got to be really non-partisan. But without it, it would be awful yeah. watching the match. Yeah, it would. No, exactly. It would feel like a practice or something. You know, it's, you, <laughs> you need that because in our minds as well, it's that, it is that it's part of the experience, you know, the crowd sounds, whether you're there or not, if you're watching it on TV, it is still part of that experience. And to not have it, it it, it really does demonstrate how much we, um, not that we rely on sound, maybe it is that we do rely on sound, or how important sound is to us. And when you take it away, you can feel quite lost, really. Mm. You know, it completely changes the how, how you experience things. You've been with the British Library for 15 years and seen a lot of changes, but nothing as dramatic as what's happened in 2020 with lockdown. I'd like to ask you, how did your role change in the last year? And what would you predict for the next 15 years? Well, it changed a lot um, over the past year because, you know, I was always in the office and I was always able to mix my work up, working with some digital material, and working with physical material. You know, I could always pop down to the basements, check out collections I you know, having my area, uh, we're digitizing a load of material as part of the Unlocking Our Sound Heritage collect, um, project at the library. And so that involves me going down, looking at these older collections. And so not being able to work with the physical collections has been 
really difficult. But there's still a lot of digital content I can do. There's a lot of lots of other work I can do. But there has been a really big increase in interest in the library's wildlife sounds because of the whole well-being aspect. And people couldn't get out. They couldn't travel. You know, maybe if you're in a city, you don't have as much access to wildlife as, as you might like, you know. So being able to listen to recordings that we have and transport yourself to, to the seaside, for example. Who didn't love going to the seaside in the summer? You couldn't do it, could you? No. Not easy. So to be able to just listen to, you know, the sounds of the sea in Cornwall or mm. you know, wherever, that was great for people. And so that was a, quite a big focus of my work, saying, well, okay, I can't do the physical stuff, but I can work with digital material. And help people, you know, access that and and make them feel better. You know, that's part of my job as well. Um, yeah. I found it past the year, but the next fifteen years, jeez, oh, I don't know. I mean, hopefully, we'll never have to experience this again. So that would be a good thing. Yeah, hopefully but not. I, I, to be honest, like, well, well, we'll try and get more material online. We've we've seen how important it is to have as much content as possible online for people to access. So you don't have to. Uh, rely on coming into somewhere you know we, we've seen how important it is to be able to access content wherever you are um but it's, i'm still going to be getting in tapes i'm still going to be getting in discs i'm still <laughs> going to be getting in um mini discs from people's lofts so i still will be getting in the physical collections um as well as the digital i don't know it's so hard to predict i yeah, never would have predicted this so <laughs> no no absolutely not So, Shira, how did you come to know Matthew? I think the first time I met Matthew was via a colleague of mine um, at the library who used to run a record label. And Matthew came into the library and remixed some of our archival recordings. And I provided, you know, quite a lot of wildlife sounds for that because they're, they're perfect to play around with. I think that's how I first met Matthew. Um, and I'm very interested in his Museum of Sound as well. And, you know, he's a real ambassador, ambassador for sound. and you know, he and he gets what I do as well, which is always nice because sometimes you do speak to people and tell them what you do and they're like, really? You do that? The library collects that? Haddocks? Um, exactly. What do you want to record the, the sound of a haddock for? What's the point of that? But he, he gets it, you know, and so when you're able to work with people like that who do value what you do and see the importance of your work, you know, it's it's brilliant. And when he came to you about this idea of Sound of the Year Awards, were you like, really? Or at last... It was definitely the latter. You know, I thought, oh, this is a great idea. It's perfect timing. It's it's a long overdue thing to do. I mean, we have, you've got organisations like the Wildlife Sound Recording Society, and they have an annual competition. But that's quite, um, it's very focused. So it's just on wildlife, and also it's just for members. But the idea is there, and they do do this. But having something like this, which opens it out to, to everybody mm. and covers different um areas as well so it's not too niche you know having something like that it's it's just brilliant i'm so excited to see what people submit you're receiving tons of stuff yourself as you mentioned uh i wonder have you thought about getting in touch with so and so from wherever saying listen we're doing this out of the year awards you might not expect this but we you ought to think about submitting it because i loved it when i heard it have you done anything like that or have you are you just letting people submit their stuff I'm letting people submit their stuff because I'm not sure in my position as a judge whether I should be kind of saying, oh, maybe you want to do this. I think I have to be hands off here. I think I've got to be very, um, I don't know, not, yeah, not exactly, not get involved. 
not say anything other than just promote it and, and encourage people to come to you know take part but yeah I'm not I'm not gonna try and get people into doing it I think ah damn I was gonna share a recording of the spokes in my Tokyo bicycle as I went through Wormwood Scrubs with you Cheryl I thought I might be able to wing it up the pile a little bit there I, I, I'm not open to bribes I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Well, Cheryl, uh, thank you again. And Matthew, I know you've gone now, but thanks, Matthew. Um, it's been fantastic talking from, from Haddocks to Hendrix and everything in between on this uh, on this show. Wish you well the awards. Um, maybe you'll come back and tell us about the awards when they've all been handed out and how it all went. That'd be lovely. Yep, feel free. Fantastic. Have a great day. Thanks. You too. sound. Is it umatic drill? Is it a motorbike? Is it a motorboat? No. You guessed it. It's the mating call of a haddock, which I found on uh, the British Library website. Collection items forward slash mating call of the haddock. Extraordinary, isn't it? Underwater sounds are recorded using a device called a hydrophone, a microphone designed. I was put off a microphone designed to record or listen to underwater sounds. That is the mating call of a haddock that uh, Cheryl spoke about during the show. And like I say, I did get it off the website, and it says date. April 1967, format sound recordings, creator A.D. Hawkins. What an extraordinary resource and what an extraordinary job uh, Cheryl has. And it was fantastic listening to her talk about the adventures of sound recordists and what she gets up to as her role as a curator of wildlife sounds with the British Library. And of course, it was fantastic too hearing about the Sound of the Year awards from Matthew and Cheryl. If you are inspired to submit a sound recording, do head to their website, soundoftheyearawards.com. I'd love to be a fly on the wall in the judging stages of this uh, award ceremony, and I can't wait to hear the winners. I'm looking forward to contacting uh, Cheryl uh, to get her to come back and speak about what won and why. It'll be a fascinating episode. I suppose the question is, dear listener, what are you thinking about submitting? Generally, before I record these little monologue outro sign-off messages, I have edited the program. I go out for a walk with my dog, put in my headphones, and then just listen to the show to make sure that I'm happy with everything. And I must say, it was a beautiful spring day in February this morning when I listened back to this program. And I really did enjoy listening to Matthew and Cheryl talk about sound. Usually on the Quiet Mark podcast, we raise awareness to the importance of acoustics in the built environment. But it's great to explore sound in its general sense. And the Sound of the Year Awards really is making us stop, think about sound, understand what it means to us and its importance to us. And when you gain that understanding, it helps you to prioritise the need for good acoustics in the built environment. I was actually quite moved listening to Cheryl talk about the mating call of that bird that will never be heard again due to human behaviour. We're very aware that we need to address our behaviour when it comes to consuming plastic bottles or using diesel cars which are being phased out. And it's our sincere hope that we'll also gain similar awareness when it comes to the sounds that we create 
whether that's in the construction of buildings or unnecessary car journeys or plane travel. Over the past few years, we've stopped and asked ourselves to consider our own carbon footprint. And I think we're entering a phase where we're asking ourselves not only what's our carbon footprint or what kind of food am I putting into my body, but also what am I listening to and what am I outputting? What impact does the sound that I generate have on the planet, on my neighbours, etc.? It's a very interesting time and it's very interesting talking to people like Matthew and Cheryl. We really look forward to hearing more about the Sound of the Year Awards. I hope you've enjoyed this show. Thank you again for tuning in. Until the next time, take care. Bye-bye.